Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Andrew is already in Maryland getting ready to uh, tackle that Ironman course tomorrow morning, and we wish him all the best. Uh, So I am uh, solo interviewing today, and uh, joining me is my longtime colleague and friend, Tara Posnikoff. Uh, Tara is a fellow triathlon coach based in Toronto. She is also a sports nutritionist. And that is why we have her on the show, because uh, we've had several requests from our listeners to do a nutrition show that is not a biochemistry lecture, that is actually, um, that has a lot of uh, functional and actionable information. Although I think that my biochemistry lecture on metabolism was functional and actionable. But uh, the aim today is to uh, uh, give you folks um, a little bit more of a uh, information you can directly apply to your training and your racing. Uh, Tara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Uh, it's been, I, I appreciate the request and um, happy that people are so interested in nutrition. Well, absolutely. I think, um, you know, you spend any time in endurance sports and you start to understand and appreciate the fact that uh, as important as training is, um, you know, that re- the recovery component of training is uh I would argue even more important and a huge piece of that is obviously nutrition. Absolutely. Um, and for the record, I did enjoy your, uh, high school or university intro, uh, metabolism course a couple of weeks ago. That was a good refresher. Don't <laughs> 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 right into those well, basics. Thanks. Right. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so let's, let's jump right into our conversation. I sent you a few questions or a few talking points, uh, before we started. And I think the, um, the most sensible place to start would be, a conversation about what should an endurance athlete or someone who's training quite a bit um, for endurance, what should their day-to-day nutrition look like? Okay. Um, so I gave that one a bit of thought because the you could take it any number of directions and I could probably have a full day conversation on what to, to eat. In fact, I have many full day conversations with lots of athletes <laughs> on what to eat and sort of what not to eat. Um, yeah, that's what they pay you for, I suppose. Exactly. Uh, so I broke it down into sort of five places to start. And I like to start with what you should add versus what you should avoid. I find sticking a positive spin on things is helpful. And as soon as you tell somebody to stop eating something, then they'll immediately focus on it. Uh, so if I said, hey, don't have that cup of coffee in the morning, not that I'm saying <laughs> that, um, you're just going to be thinking about coffee all day That's long. That's true. We're wired in that in that, in that that way where like the absence of something is, is a keenly felt loss. I totally agree exactly. with you Exactly. And I think, you know, you'd say that your, your athletes, and I know my athletes sort of feel that way as soon as we start to taper and they're like, where's that activity? I want more activity. Yeah, 100%. Um, so the first place I want to start is eating vegetables. <laughs> Uh, no surprise there. Um, but really I feel like this is one of the most underappreciated areas of nutrition. We are told to eat our vegetables as children. Some of us do, some of us don't. And then some point in adulthood, we forget, uh, that vegetables are part of a diet. 
we tend mm. to focus too much on that, the calories, right? The, the carbohydrates, the fats, the proteins, or even just getting calories in as endurance athletes, but we fail to f- recognize the importance of those, those micronutrients. So what, what is the, what is the value of, uh, I think you maybe just hinted at it with that last word you said, but, uh, why, you know, why, why do we need to eat vegetables? Why should we be paying attention to how much and what sort of vegetables we eat? Yeah. So predominantly your vegetables are going to be your biggest nutritional bang for your buck, so to speak. You're going to get your vitamins, minerals, bioflavonoids, uh, phytochemicals, lots of fiber, a little bit of water, and all of those can't be overlooked. Um, we tend to start thinking too much about maybe energy balance, although that's very mm-hmm. important in, in endurance athletes. But as endurance athletes, we're putting so much strain on the body. We're asking so much of ourselves in addition you know, to work and social and family. We're putting in six to 15 hours of training a week, and the body doesn't work without those nutrients. Right, right. It, it becomes harder to get them in uh, when we're just eating um, foods that aren't vegetables. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Especially, I suppose, if you are on the um, the, the larger side of that uh, hourly training spectrum, and you know, you mentioned the term, and we should talk about it: um, energy balance. Uh, and you're just concerned with getting enough calories in um, vegetables. Most vegetables, I suppose, aren't super calorically dense, which is, you know, both a curse and a blessing. Um, but for those of us who, who maybe you know, <laughs> are operating on a on a 4,000 calorie a day sort of uh, sort of diet for for the, the you know the folks in in big training weeks, um, it's it might be tough to get those vegetables in. Yeah, what do you? What's your advice for that? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm not saying get all your calories from vegetables. That would be a very large trough uh, per day. <laughs> you would just be, yeah, I think you'd just be eating and pooping the whole time. Exactly, and then that doesn't afford you time for training, <laughs> uh, unless right. we can combine the three activities. And let's not go there. So you know, they, you know, it it should just be a component of your day. Breakfast should include some vegetables. Lunch should include vegetables. Dinner should include vegetables. And if we're trying to get in between seven and 10 cups of vegetables a day cooked in any manner, whether it's raw or steamed or grilled or baked or roasted, then I don't want to fuss too much about about those details, but we're going to help give the body all the accessory nutrients that it needs in addition to the calories that we tend not to overlook that are coming from more, say, calorically dense foods, um, which is going to help mm-hmm. give us the biggest uh, the biggest gains and meet those needs. Okay, that's great. So uh, step one, add more vegetables. Yeah. What else do we need to do? Okay. Or what else do we need to pay attention to? <laughs> Getting adequate amounts of protein. Um, and I find, you know, whether you're a, when, when you're a meat eater, then you're probably not going to be too deficient in protein, but you might still be lacking protein in even doses across the day. So, and why is that important? Well, a lot of us tend to eat a very large dinner, uh, consisting of a high volume of protein. You know, think about a chicken breast or even four ounces of um, any sort of animal protein and great, you're getting 30 or 40 grams of protein there. But if you're not having anything first thing in the morning, or you're not having anything, um, with lunch, then it's not optimizing your training recovery, uh, your performance, or, 
even optimizing your food intake because you might be more prone to cravings, um, feeling hungry later in the day. And later in the day, let's face it, we probably aren't making the best nutritional decisions if we're tired uh, and stressed. Right. So let me just uh, ask a, a couple of questions there. Um, and this yeah. one is probably super basic for most of our listeners, but I do want to make sure that we cover it. Uh, what, what, you know, why is protein important and uh, even more important to people uh, in athletics? So it's important, you know, for us in endurance athletics, because we're constantly breaking down our bodies. We're using and abusing or just using and rebuilding every time we do a hard workout um, or a strength workout or any sort of workout. Uh, right. So we're, and we're more, we're just more active than our, you know, counterparts that are less active. Uh, so our, our needs proportionally increase. Um, protein, more specifically amino acids are important for um, all sorts of growth as well as hormonal um messaging throughout the body, neurotransmitters, all of that. So across all your functions, protein's important. Got it. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, and then on that uh, on that note, I want to ask two questions. Uh, in, uh, the first one being about uh, quantity and the second about sources. So I'll qualify that second bit a little bit. Obviously, there are um, various sources of protein, and you mentioned some from coming from animals. Uh, for those of us following a non-animal eating, vegetarian, vegan diet, um, I'd like you to speak to a little bit about sources there. And then if you have no dietary restrictions, whether, you know, health reason or personal reason, what, you know, what is the, what are the best sources of, uh, of protein? So quantity and, uh, I guess quality. Yeah. So, so quantity, it's a range as with anything in the nutrition world. And I think with, in the training world, um, a lot of us tend to think that more is better. Um, but there's optimal ranges of, of everything. And I think, uh, protein levels are going to vary given um, what else you're eating, what else you're doing, times of the year when you're training, uh, recovery, injury, and all of that. So let's just give a pretty broad range of sure. you know, 0.8 to 1.4 grams per kilogram of lean body mass um, as, as a rough amount. I've seen people go up to a pound per, uh, or one gram per pound well, but sometimes that's going to come at the cost of what else we're eating. Right. That would be on the higher side. So if you were saying that would like, be on the higher side. Yeah. Yeah. Just to do some quick math, if it's if you're saying 0.8 to 1.6 of lean mass. So keeping keeping in mind that, you know, look, the average, depending on your body mass composition listeners, you know, that that might uh, that number is actually going to be might be a little bit higher given total mass, right? So if you, I'm going to use myself as an example, if I am 82 kilos, and roughly 17% body fat, I have to you know, my lean mass is 82 kilos less 17%, right? So if I'm doing, if I'm doing um, my protein macro mathematics, I have to take, you know, I have to take, uh, and I only know my, my total mass, I have to kind of at least have a guess of what my lean mass would be in order to do that math. That sound right? Yeah. Um, and let, with anything, it's a starting point. Right. So if you find you're significantly lower than this in your intake, then this is one area to address. If you're exceeding 150 grams of protein per day um, and you're you know, an, an average sized athlete, then that might be something to consider backing off and looking at your other macronutrients. It all goes back to what are your goals. So it's, it's a starting point as opposed to a hard number. 
Yeah, and I remember reading that that it depends on whether or not you're focusing on strength training and a little bit of hypertrophy, like muscle accumulation versus endurance training. Exactly. And then keep in mind during periods of injury and illness, protein needs go up. Right, um, that's important. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's talk about uh, protein sources. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Right. And specifically, I mean, it's not super hard, as you, as you mentioned, for, for meat eaters or omnivores, but what about... Um, specifically for uh, vegans and vegetarians. Yeah, absolutely. And by no means am I advocating one way of eating to another. Um, everybody's got their own preferences, their own reasons, uh, their own you know desires and what they, they like. So um, if you are eating a meat-based diet, getting your uh, essential amino acids, so those building blocks that the body can't actually uh, make and that we need to get from food is relatively easy to meet because uh, animal sources of protein are going to have that. So in the vegetarian vegan world, uh, depending on where you draw your your line um, in the sand as to what you eat, whether that consumes some dairy uh, and some eggs or all vegan, 100% uh, plant-based, you need to pay attention to your, um, your sources of protein a little bit more um, closely. Right. So all that really means is that you'd be looking at a variety of sources. Your most dense uh, sources of protein in the vegetarian vegan world, well, in the, the vegan world specifically, are going to be your beans and lentils. Um, we don't want to forget the vegetables because even in like a head of broccoli, you can get about 18 grams of protein. Oh, crazy. Okay. Um, we've, yeah. <laughs> that's the equivalent of like three eggs. Huh. Um, so if we move over into the vegetarian world, um, where we're adding some eggs, possibly some, um, uh, plain dairy, those are some other good sources of protein, um, unferment or un, unprocessed soy, uh, so organic soy or tempeh, um, also good sources of protein. We can lump in whether we're talking animal, uh, or vegetarian to a high quality protein powder supplement, uh, for extra source of protein and going back to sort of what the, the vegan athlete would need to pay attention to is just, if you're having, you know, beans or lentils, those have a few of the essential amino acids. You're going to want to put in some rice and some corn, uh, to meet the other essential amino acids, just to balance things off. Um, do you have to do that at every meal? No. Uh, but throughout the day, throughout the week, you know, a variety of protein sources are going to be uh, key to aid in that sort of protein complementarity, um, which some of your listeners might have heard about, just to make sure you're getting all of the key amino acids. Cool. Well, great advice. Um, okay. So, so far we've, uh, we're making sure that we're eating enough vegetables and that was seven to 10 cups from what you said earlier. And uh, now we're eating enough protein. Um, based on body weight and sort of the phase of our training, uh, what else should we be thinking about or adding to our diet? Um, well, just finishing off on that protein level, uh, I think I alluded to it when I in the opening statement there, but making sure I find the hardest time to get it in for most people in the morning uh, with breakfast. Right. Okay. And I think that's just because we're conditioned to eating, you know, marketing has brainwashed us to believe that a bowl of cereal and a glass of orange juice is a complete breakfast, <laughs> um, neither of which have any protein. So for a lot of athletes, finding a way to fit protein in, in the morning, um, can be challenging. So, um, emphasizing that area of your diet versus, Oh, should I just have another ounce of X protein, um, at dinner or something like that? 
Okay, so what are what are some good uh, some good options? Let's say if you are uh, um, a cereal grainy kind of breakfast person and you don't want to eat you know three eggs for breakfast yeah. every morning, what do you what would you recommend? So, so a little off the the beaten path, I try to recommend people add some lentils to their uh, morning porridge if you lentils, like oatmeal. Huh? Or lentils, yeah, you got about eighteen grams of protein per three quarters of a cup. So you can easily switch your concept of oatmeal to a bowl of lentils, add in some, some apples or some cinnamon and berries. And now it looks a little bit more breakfast like, um, other options would be stirring in a scoop of protein powder into whatever cereal you're having, topping your cereal off with three tablespoons of hemp seeds is going to give you 10 grams of protein, um, as well as some healthy fat, which we can talk about later. Um, nuts and seeds. I mentioned hemp seeds, but while nuts tend to be more in the fat category, they're still 25% protein. So adding some almonds or some walnuts, cashews to your cereal can help boost that uh, protein level a little bit. Cool. Okay. So what do we do next? Let's talk about water. (laughs) Let's talk about water. Um, so staying hydrated is key for the endurance athlete. We tend to think about this only during training, I find, but throughout the day, it's just important. Um, we want to maintain that 60, 65% level of you know water that we are as humans. So um, we want to make sure that we're not neglecting our, our fluid intake throughout the day. Okay. So, um, and I think we should talk, we will talk about, um, fluid intake during training and racing. Um, so day to day when we're not actually super active or let's say moderately active, how do you make sure that you're getting enough? So I think paying attention to it is the first, um, key. Not everybody has a thirst metric or is in tune with it. So they tend to think every time they're feeling a cue, it's to eat. Perhaps it's, you know, your body just crying a little bit for water. Um, (laughs) So being aware of it, whether it's a tracker on your phone or, or post-it notes on your, your desk, um, just trying to make sure that you're having water throughout the day. And I'm going to harp on water a little bit because yes, tea and coffee um, and any other liquid have water and it does contribute to your hydration intake. But a lot of times we forget you know, it's, it's easy to start consuming too much sugar, too much calories, uh, from our liquid sources. And while, you know, the amount your, your general population who's listening today probably might need some additional calories when we're drinking our calories. Um, it's harder to keep track of them. Right. So starting the day off with a glass of water, uh, consuming water in between meals, having small amounts of, of water with meals is to not dilute your, your stomach acid, um, and just paying attention to those levels and using the color of your urine, um, is another good way to, you know, check in on how hydrated you are. So we don't really want it to be crystal clear. Um, but we also don't want that, that dark, um, yellow color. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if you're running, if you're running to the bathroom every 15 minutes, chances are you overdid it. You could, you could be overdoing it if, if it's that um, if it's yeah. that frequent. Having said that, I think a lot of people are thinking, you know, even if they're they're running to the washroom three or four times a day um, to 
to get rid of some urine, that that's too much. And while it might be slightly inconvenient, depending on your job and your situation, you need to be, you know, urinating is the number one way. Well, one of the ways you're getting rid of waste products in the body. So think of it as a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, it's just your body. It's it's your it's your, you know, it's your proper detox. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think we could also talk about the whys of hydration and why it's so important, uh, because sometimes that helps with convincing people to drink a little bit more. Um, and this is again, one of those scenarios where more isn't necessarily better. Uh, we want to stay in, you know, broad strokes, two to three liters per day, uh, for most people in most conditions, um, excluding, and I'll, 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 cause we'll come back and talk about during exercise later, but sort of excluding anything that's happening in a, a five or six hour, um, workout (laughs) where your needs are considerably different. So, um, the importance is that you're one transporting nutrients throughout the body. Um, you're providing some joint lubrication and shock absorption. You're maintaining core body temperature. Um, you're helping to eliminate waste, which we talked about and just helping with your brain to function. Uh, so you're maintaining alertness as well as, um, Perhaps if we're trying to, if we always think that we're hungry and we're actually eating enough, then maintaining uh, proper hunger signals in the body. Right. Cool. Uh, yeah, obviously, you know, the, just the fact alone that we're, we're composed primarily of water is, uh, is, a, is a good sign that probably taking in water, given that we expel it so frequently, is, is a good thing to be doing and, and making sure that there's enough of it. Absolutely. And we need, we need that water to create energy. (laughs) So if, you know, you go back to your Krebs cycle of two or three weeks ago, um, how many times does water enter that cycle? (laughs) Oh, you're putting me on the spot now. I gotta, (laughs) I gotta crack open my textbook, but no point taken. That's right. You have, you, you need water for metabolism. That is very much the case. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about, about staying hydrated. So if you, if we tend to make our our primary liquid of choice, water or herbal tea or um, carbonated water for those of us who find water boring. Um, you know, we just want to drink it in moderate amounts throughout the day uh, and try to minimize the intake of perhaps other fluids that might not be so healthful, like pop or juice or um, s- certain coffee beverages. <laughs> Sure. How do you feel about the adding to your water um, things like, you know, things like electrolytes, you know, and I'll throw out a couple of brand names like Noon or BioSteel, uh, not when you're training, but just, you know, during your everyday life? Uh, during every day, I'd say that for most people, Noon is going to contain too much sodium for that day to day drinking because it's about 350 milligrams of sodium. Uh, per okay. tablet, whereas BioSteel is a little bit lower. It's on the 100 milligram of sodium uh, per uh, scoop level. So I think, you know, if you're looking to maybe flavor your your water a little bit and make it a little bit more interesting, then that could be one way to do it. But I think it's important to look at what else is coming in in the diet. So if you eat out a lot and you're getting a lot of sodium from um, your food that is being prepared for you, then those supplements probably are entirely unnecessary and maybe driving up your sodium levels too much. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't eat, uh, you don't salt your food, you predominantly cook a lot of food on yourself, yourself, then those kind of supplements might be okay for increasing overall sodium content, uh, which can you know still be important 
um, especially if you're tending to drink a lot, you know, on the higher end of the water spectrum. Right, right. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. So I wouldn't say we need them. Um, are they harmful in that sense? Probably not. Uh, could you do it considerably cheaper just by adding pinches of sea salt to your water or your foods? Probably yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, uh, that's kind of how I, I think about it too. It's, uh, you know, you feel free to do it, but it's not strictly necessary for most of us. Mm-hmm. Now we've talked about a little bit about micro and, and micronutrients with the vegetables and the water. And, uh, we touched on one of the one of the macros protein, and, uh, I'm going to put you in the hot seat now. Um, I want to, I want you to talk about the other two carbohydrate and fat, of course. Um, yep. and in past episodes, I've expressed my opinion on the matter, but I'm always keen to hear others. Where do you feel that, that, um, that balance, or if you feel there is a balance lies for endurance athletes, like primarily should, should the bulk of the calories day to day come from fat or from carbohydrate? Um, well, for endurance athletes, I definitely feel the bulk. So about 50%, uh, should be coming from carbohydrates. So the reason being carbohydrates are a main source of energy, um, as an athlete and, um, carbohydrates have the fiber and the B vitamins. Um, it's important though. I think that we quantify or qualify these, uh, these carbohydrates as I'm not talking about loading up on pastas and breads and pastries and, um, crackers and those simple, (laughs) highly processed carbohydrates. We want to talk about those smart carbs, like starchy vegetables, beans, lentils, um, whole grains like, or grasses, even like quinoa and rice, buckwheat, barley. Those are the carbohydrates that are going to help, um, I guess, fuel most of the endurance athletes diet. Right. Yeah. I, I'm a hundred percent on board with you. I think that's, I think I, I suspect that some of the, uh, the low carb, high fat advocates, um, you know, what they're really railing against is processed carbs and, uh, um, I think I know I've been chatting with you in the past. I know that, uh, that your, I know your opinion on, on processed carbohydrates outside of racing. Um, and I, I share that opinion. Sometimes it's hard to stay away from them. Certainly it might be a willpower issue, but, uh, yeah, when we talk about uh, a carbohydrate based diet, we're, we're not advocating, yeah, this, the, the processed sugar and the, and the, uh, bleached flowers of the world rather than, um, the, uh, the complex carbs and the, the vegetable based carbohydrates. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, the pendulum swung so far to one side with endurance athletes and the pasta party and eat all the breads and fruits and things like that, that you want, um, top up on, on energy drinks or juice or, um, any other simple or highly processed carb that I think, you know, it, it has to swing back, but in doing that, because everybody likes to be quite polarized in their discussion that either we're, <laughs> you know, carbs are good or carbs yep. are bad or fats are good or fats are bad that in effort to, uh, I'll even I'll almost say demonize the carbohydrate we've swung to this, this, uh, marketing or, you know, philosophy that all carbs were bad. Um, and we forget that, you know, there's still, there's a bulk of them that are, are quite healthful, uh, and that the body actually thrives on. 
Yeah, no, I think that's uh, that's a really that's a really good way to put it. And you know, it's important to take into context the the workload of the body, right? I uh, I was um, at a at a talk that Lionel Sanders gave a little while ago after Tremblant, and he was talking about um, you know his caloric intake, and I forget the number, but he was somewhere in the like. I think on av- his average days are in the five to six thousand calorie range, and it's um, you know he he burns in a ridiculous amount of energy. So he you know he needs to he he can afford to pretty much you know fuel it with with a lot. Well, he needs to fuel it with a lot of carbohydrate. Whereas somebody who is you know sedentary or or is not very active and has a, a closer to you know eighteen hundred or two thousand calorie. Um, energy balance requirement, then, then those people need to be a little bit more selective, perhaps with uh, the source of that energy. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a huge amount of genetic diversity out there in, you know, all our populations. So certain populations are doing quite well on high fat and others on higher carbohydrate diet. So I think it's important to recognize that there's no one size fits all. Uh, but if we're looking at somewhere between, you know, even 40 and 60% of your diet coming from carbohydrates, that to me doesn't fall into a high carbohydrate situation, nor into the super low carbohydrates or uh, situation. And it allows for, um, it still allows for adequate amounts of protein and, um, you know, to sort of bridge the gap into your next, uh, point, adequate amounts, adequate amounts of healthy fat you know, the percentages. So if somebody who's eating five or 6,000 calories per day, yes, they're going to be eating more carbohydrates. Um, but the, the percentage may not be actually that much different from, you know, as you said, somebody who's eating 1800 calories per day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually a really important distinction. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. It's just proportional. Okay. Um, so speaking of that, of that, uh, fat carbohydrate balance, because if you think of, you know, the way that I like to think about sort of, you know, the, the trying to meet the total caloric demand of, a of a human, um, protein is more or less set, you know, you, you eat a certain amount of protein to maintain that healthy function. And then you play around with the, the relative ratio of, of carbohydrate and, uh, and fat to meet the rest of it. Um, does that sound about right? Yeah, about about right. We're looking at, you know, somewhere between 25 and probably 30% of the diet then coming from healthy sources of fat. Right. That makes sense. Um, so this, uh, this gets me to my next question. Do you, uh, in your practice as a, as a sports uh, nutritionist, do you think about periodizing carbohydrates? And by that, I mean, um, varying that percentage of carbs versus fat in somebody's, in someone's diet, uh, relative to how much they're working or the kind of work that they do, whether or not they're doing high intensity versus low intensity and maybe you know, higher volume, or if they're doing um, uh, strength training, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> in in theory, it's fantastic. And I agree with it. Um, in practice, agree with I think what? With periodization, with, with periodization of, of nutrition, you can, you know, you're, you're good, you're gaining at that, that high, high level fruit rate there. And that's, that's fantastic, uh, to maximize that one or 2%. But I feel like in the population, um, most people aren't doing everything else right first and to start complicating your food intake, which can already sometimes be quite complicated to on this day, you're going to eat X number of grams of carbohydrates. And on this day, this many, and so forth, I think it can get a little too 
complicated um, for the average person. It's great if somebody has that amount of interest and that amount of time, uh, but I feel like there's a lot of gains to be held from, um, you know, first mastering your basic daily um, diet. Yeah, I really like that advice. And so it sounds like your opinion on this is that it's in the it's firmly in the marginal gains territory. Exactly. Yeah. If you're okay. doing everything else right, then let's start playing around with that. Um, or if you're having trouble breaking through, say, a plateau um, or you're a highly competitive athlete who's, all, like I said, already doing anything, everything else right, by all means, like we can tinker with that. But, I, you know, athletes do really well on routine <laughs> and yes. they, you know, maybe even to a, a, a detriment. But I think it's important to establish those good overall nutrition habits before we just start saying, OK, then, you know, this is a strength day. Um, you need a little bit more uh, carb if you're doing high intensity training and maybe a little bit more protein. But if you're on a recovery day, maybe um, a little bit less of everything, um, keeping in mind, you know, if you're recovering from a super high day, then protein levels might need to be slightly higher on that, that off day than they otherwise would. But your caloric intake would probably go down too. It just gets complicated. <laughs> For sure. And I, I, I think you're right. And given the um, kind of the, the population of athletes that make up most of, I know, my roster for sure, and, and I imagine yours as well, as these are people with uh, with things that are other than training on their mind, you know, they have families and have jobs and uh, and adding complexity to their days is, is not a very uh, attractive proposition for a coach or a nutritionist. No. And then, I mean, if we think of it, even on the athlete side, that's adding one more layer of stress to what you already said, yeah. a high stress uh, training plan to families to like, am I cooking three different meals for three different people in the <laughs> household? And how, do, how do I make this work? And you, as soon as you start increasing stress, you start increasing cortisol, you start increasing, decreasing performance, you may negatively affect sleep. And none of this is helpful. So looking at the, the end goal, the end, you know, the end game for this athlete, what do we want to do? We want to make it achievable um, and realistic for them so that they can hit their, their goal. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, so listen, I want to kind of switch gears and talk about training and racing. But before we do, I have a, a quick question about something that you said uh, in talking about um, about day-to-day -day nutrition. You mentioned fruit. And um, this is kind of a leading question for you, Tara, because I think I know where you're <laughs> going to go with this. But uh, uh, we all grow up you know, with the, the apple a day mentality and um, understanding or thinking that, uh, that fruits are uh, a really essential part of the diet. And and when you were talking about vitamins, um, you know, I, I, you purposefully said vegetables. Where do fruit fit into the the big picture? Because you know they taste good and people like them, and people think they're Absolutely. super healthy. And so what's your you know, what's your I take? Don't mean to not not talk about fruits and to to a point. You know, I say eat your vegetables. Fruits are loosely included in there. You know, Michael, after thirteen or fourteen years of practice, I can still count on one hand the number of people that don't like fruit. <laughs> so. <laughs> Since, since it's not a problem that most people have, most people like fruit, they eat fruit. So it's not something I'll, I'll you know, start with focusing on. However, um, for those people maybe looking to lean out a little bit or um, just modify their, their diet intake, um, fruit is a source of sugar. It's a healthy sugar. It's a natural sugar, but too much sugar is still sugar. 
um, and too much sugar without uh, enough exercise or enough means to burn it um, at that specific time is just going to lead to fat storage. Um, oversimplified statement, but um, in the effort of time, we'll leave it there. So um, yes, fruits are going to have your vitamins and minerals. Um, they're going to have more calories than vegetables. So they're a little bit more calorically dense. Right. Typically, I'd recommend um, looking to, well, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Fruit juice and dried fruits, I'd say are a no-no um, just because they're hot, so high in sugar, right? When do you sit down and eat eight oranges that make, makes up your typical <laughs> glass of orange juice? Never. Right. Or yeah. how many raisins will you max out on versus grapes? It's easy to Fair have point. handful after handful, but are you really going to have like four cups of grapes? In one sitting. <laughs> I don't, you, um, I don't, have you met me? I can. I think I can probably pull that off and not not worry too much about it. <laughs> right, and and grapes might not be the best example because they're fairly <laughs> low low glycemic, lots of water, um, yeah. and actually one of the fruits that's mostly glucose and not um, not fructose. Yep. So, um, which we could spend a whole other show talking about, but. Uh, so and minimum- we will have actually well, good segue, well, a good sneak peek where uh, we actually will be talking about fructose in probably about a month's time. Um, that's an interesting conversation that uh, those of you with you know tummy troubles may have uh, may may learn something really useful from. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so. Um- uh, fruit juice and dried fruits are a no-no, and I know lots of people start trying to, you know, throw dates into their their cereal or their shakes or their meals, thinking, "Oh, dates are healthy, natural source of sugar." At yep. the end of the day, unless you're consuming dates during exercise, you know, those dried fruits, we want to minimize them in the diet or just completely remove them. But by all means, yes, have some, you know, maybe one to three servings um, of fruit per day. Typically, I'd say most people want to try to put this um, in and around exercise. Uh, the exception might be your FODMAP people that you're going to talk about later. Yep. Um, and then you just want to watch the type of, of fruit. So um, fruits do have their place in the diet, but it's, you know, the reason I just kind of ignored it was um, most people don't have a problem getting them in. Fair point. Yeah, we were talking about things we wanted to add to the diet. And and yeah, to your point, people don't need to be told to eat more fruit generally. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, uh, let's switch gears. And, uh, you know, we've, we've done, a I think, a real nice job. You've done a real nice job of uh, talking about day to day nutrition. Now let's talk about uh, about training. And um, I know that you you might you might do this on your own anyway, but I'm going to lead you with this uh, with this caveat. I'd love for you to talk about sort of easy recovery training um, training sessions where durations, let's say, under an hour, and intensities, let's say, fairly low. Um, and then I'd like you to talk about long training sessions where maybe let's say 90 minutes, two hours plus. Um, and then intense training sessions. So maybe if you can cover those three scenarios, and then we will maybe then we will talk about racing. Okay, so you want to cover all three as it um, relates to before, during, and after. Well, not necessarily before, during, and after. You can just okay. say that uh, you know if oh, you know it. if for <laughs> this session, don't worry about before, during, and after. Then it could be as simple a conversation as that for some of them, which I imagine you may. Say. Right. So it all goes back to making things easy. Um, so this is going to apply to most people. Um, if you've got some highly competitive people or those trying to keep weight on or actually, uh, increase weight, then the the strategies change a little bit. We have to individualize, but you know, let's start with that, that easy recovery workout. Um, 
Does it need to be fueled beforehand? Um, ideally, something in the tank is better than nothing, especially if it's coming first thing in the morning. You've just fasted for eight to ten hours uh, since dinner, and uh, if you can, if you know, maybe even have half a banana uh, before going out the door. This just means that you're not starting that workout in a fasted state, um, and your body's going to have something to use for fuel. Got it. Reason I'll, I'll say that, um, and I know in the past you've probably heard me say that, don't even worry about it, but I'm just modifying the statement a little bit um, so that it's it's all relative to somebody's goals. <laughs> uh, if you're going out for a 30-minute run, then I'd probably still say don't worry about it. But at the end of the day, most of us, all of us are trying to get a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, and uh, help the body succeed versus break it down so if we can take that extra 30 minutes and get something in the tank even for a um a short easy workout then let's practice that i like it and then just for the sake of simplicity and not you know not overcomplicating the, the questions let's assume that uh, all those three scenarios i laid out for you these are for the you know joe average athlete or jane average athlete who is uh you know, who doesn't have very specific body composition or body mass goals in mind. They're, they're perform, they're a performance orientated athlete. They want to improve their performance. Okay. Um, so finishing off that recovery, um, scenario, try to eat something beforehand, definitely hydrate beforehand. So even if it's a morning workout and you're, you're rolling out of bed, essentially into your running shoes and heading out the door, try to have a sip of water. If not take some water with you again, even if it's only 5k, a little bit of water is going to be helpful because absolutely in the morning you're, um, you're in a dehydrated state. And when you're dehydrated, you're more at risk for injury. Um, muscle strains can easily become, pulls, tears, et cetera. So just either drink some water or take some water with you. Uh, and then post-workout in that scenario, guess what? If it's in the morning, what meal is there? Breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> so make sure you're having, you know, within, you know, it doesn't have to be the second you walk in the door, right? That workout wasn't that stressful, but within the next hour or so, let's try to have a complete breakfast. And that complete breakfast is going to have some carbs, some proteins, and some healthy fat. Okay. Good advice. So if we're looking then at the uh, intense workout, the, you know, VO2 workout or that track session of 800 meters, um, some sort of test session, then this is a workout that I think we really want to fuel up because we want to um, perform at our best, right? We're we're being tasked with working hard. And if we want to work to our maximum advantage, then we need to make sure we've got some uh, fuel in the tank, so to speak. So whether it's happening first thing in the morning, afternoon, evening, trying to prioritize food, um, ingestion at least 60 minutes beforehand so that it allows your body enough time to, um, digest that. And by digest, I really just mean get out of the stomach because even the simplest carbohydrates, you know, won't have been broken down in the small intestine, sent to the blood, start you, start and they won't be you know utilized exactly within that time but um trying to take in something it also goes to say like you know if we're talking first thing in the morning if you're trying to do an ftp test or um run a 5k personal best you're not going to just be rolling out of bed right you're going to need some time for your body to to wake up warm up get the neuromuscular system firing 
For sure. No, that makes sense. And then in that meal, let's say you're, you know, you're not doing it first thing out of uh, first thing out of bed, which a lot of us don't do very well for the reasons you just outlined. Um, is there something that you want to, in terms of, let's say, macronutrients, prioritize over others, or some things you want to avoid? Yeah, absolutely. So carbohydrates, for one, we want to prioritize that. Um, you know, around a gram uh, of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight. So if we're using you as an example, I think that was around 75. Um, you know, you're being generous. I'm like, I'm north of 80 now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> off season, off season. Off season. Oh, I wish. <laughs> um, so, um, taking in the carbohydrates because we've got a little bit longer to digest. We want to throw some protein in there. Uh, that's going to slow down digestion, but that's also going to give the, um, the body something to burn as well. Okay. And the only thing I'd say minimize when we're dealing with a 60 to, to 90 minute time frame is minimize the fat and minimize the fiber. So fat is fantastic. Fat increases satiety. It fills us up. It, it slows down blood sugar release. But for all those reasons, we don't want to have a lot of it right before exercise. Yep. Uh, and then fiber, too much fiber um, also slows down digestion, but it can also make the gut kind of irritable. And again, those are, that's usually not something uh, we want uh, during our exercise uh, session. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, okay, so what about uh, what about let's say our um, you know not very intense but long duration sessions like our long rides, long runs, which are you know kind of bread and butter for the endurance athlete. Right. So these are, um, and when you say long, are you talking two hours, three hours, seven hours longer? Let's uh, let's say that um, at what point do you tip the scale? So let's say, yeah, up to two hours, I would consider that to be not a very long effort, but let's say three to, you know, three, four, five hour effort. Okay. Um, so long sessions are the other uh, key session that we need to prioritize our nutrition in uh, because they are so long and they're tapping into our, uh, well, we don't, they're going to tap in, but we don't want them to tap in too much into those, those reserves. So um, most of us are going to do those long sessions in the morning. So if we look at logistics, um, we've been fasted for, you know, how many ever hours it has been since dinner. So let's safely call that 10 hours. Yep. Um, so our, our muscle glycogen's a little low, our liver glycogen's a little low, our brain glycogen's a little low. So we want to boost that up with that pre, um, pre-training meal. And that's definitely where that one to one and a half grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight comes in. Um, hydration is, is key, uh, as well. So, you know, refilling with, uh, or rehydrating with 500, 700 mils of fluid pre-exercise. And then, um, because we're typically going to, uh, eat a little bit more because we're going to be doing more, we want to add in, uh, a little bit of protein and that can be, you know, anywhere from 15 to, to 30 grams of, um, protein. Cool. Cool. So I would say, you know, for those struggling to eat first thing in the morning, cause that can be a, a challenge, uh, liquids digest a little bit faster than solids. So throwing all of that good stuff in a blender, um, so some oats and some unsweetened almond milk and some berries, banana, um, maybe, uh, half an avocado or a couple of tablespoons of nut butter, blending that up, you're good to go. Um, or for those of us who want a little bit more of a relaxing morning or really just like eating solids, then that bundles up into say like a bowl of oatmeal, um, with a, two tablespoons of natural almond butter and, um, 
maybe some 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 berries and or an egg um, alongside of that. Okay, so a fairly well-rounded meal, but heavy on the carbohydrates. Exactly. Cool. Okay, what about during? During. Um, so always, always, always water. So ballpark 500 mils of uh, fluid per hour. Okay. And that that's going to change based on body size and environmental conditions, but that's a good starting point. I know most a lot of people even struggle with with that much. Yes. Especially and in it, the run. It, yeah, exactly. I was just going to say, it's very sport dependent. I find that, you know, both nutrition and hydration, um, myself and most people I work with, we can stomach a lot more on the bike than we can on the run. Exactly. And and indoors versus outdoors. I've, I think I did an hour and 20 minute bike workout the other week and went through two and a half bottles of fluid, which yeah. is way too high. But I was just like, I'm indoors. This is, I think I was using it as excitement. Let's face it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just, you know, we don't want to overdo it. That, that definitely was overdoing it. Um, although I was sweating a lot that day, but let's, let's call it, you know, 500 to 750 mils of fluid per hour. Um, okay as a good starting point. So if we're less than 90 minutes, that can just be water. Some people, people are going to want to add in some electrolytes like noon or biosteel or something. And that's mainly at this point, just from a flavor perspective to get yourself to drink. Um, biologically speaking, 90 minutes of exercise, we don't really need electrolytes. We should have enough sodium in the body. We're not sweating that profusely. Um, unless maybe you're doing a, a crazy test set, but we're, we're not at risk of depleting our sodium levels to a harmful spot. Right. Yeah. No hyponatremia for us. Exactly. Um, so that's our, um, sort of less than 90 minutes worth of, of working out. When we get into the 90 minutes to say three hours, we want to start considering carbohydrates. Um, and that's just because after about 90 minutes, we're going to be out of that stored glycogen, no matter how topped up we are. Mm -hmm. And we want to make sure that we've got a constant flow of um, sugar coming into the body to fuel our muscles. So there's a fairly big range here. Um, so if we break it down between, um, what did I say, 90 minutes and three hours, most people are going to be somewhere in that 30 to 60 grams of, of carb per hour. Okay. Um, that's going to be independent, uh, or dependent rather on intensity, um, body size, um, how much you can actually ingest. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, those are the main, main things. So intensity and, um, size of body and things like that. Right. So for, for our listeners, the, the guideline, I mean, it's, it's probably trivial to say it's pretty obvious, but if you're working hard, you need more carbs. If you're bigger, you probably need more carbs because you're probably working exactly. harder. <laughs> um, if you're, yeah, that's right. If you, if you've trained yourself to, to, to be able to ingest, digest more, you can take more of it. Yeah. And we still want to be mindful of those upper limits. So if we're looking at predominantly glucose, we only have about, we're only able to absorb about one gram per minute in the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, research, uh, was, you know, showing that with two types of carbohydrates, mainly glucose and fructose, you can push that boundary up to about one and a half or 90, um, 90 grams of carbs per hour, but not very many people are proficient at ingesting and digesting that. So I would almost even reserve anything over 75 grams of, of carbs per hour. Um, 
into a sort of a subpopulation of, you know, you're, you've spent a lot of time training your gut, your gut does, you don't have any um, digestive difficulties and you know, you're, you're good to go. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, just to be m- being mindful of overall time, but if you can quickly talk about sources of those, uh, of those sugars, uh, sure. Uh, so sources we, we can go, you know, there's a spectrum and just like anybody, everybody has their own dietary preferences. A lot of people have their own, uh, nutritional preferences. So, um, it can come from liquids, i.e. sports drinks. Uh, your carbohydrates can come from things like gels, um, blocks to a lesser extent bars. Um, and then staying, if you want to stay more in the natural world, um, things like maple syrup, honey, dates, um, actual fruit like bananas breads um different sports are going to dictate the practicality of some of these and also um digestive abilities um and dietary preferences just to put some context around there one gel and this is pretty much typical across the board one gel is usually going to give you about 22 to 26 grams of carbs uh per package so for somebody trying to get in, you know, between 50 and 60 grams of carbs per hour, they're looking about two gels per hour to meet those needs. Right. Right. I was just going to say as a, as a personal anecdote, um, Tara mentioned a couple of natural uh, alternatives, honey and uh, maple syrup. Um, and uh, the big difference between the two is that honey is quite high in fructose which is, you know, we, we, we mentioned earlier, she mentioned earlier, could be an issue for some people and is an issue for me. Um, but maple syrup is primarily sucrose, so glucose and fructose. And I'm a huge fan of maple syrup. So if, if, I'm, if I'm coaching you, chances are we've talked about, you know, taking maple syrup on your runs and rides. Um, but um, if you have no fructose issues, then, then honey can be a really, really good alternative. But to Tara's point about individuality um, and uh, experimentation, it's worth, it's worth trying all of these things before you really, you know, it, it probably you will have to f- try a few things before you find something that really works. Definitely. And, you know, just going back to that, that fructose component a little bit, keep in mind that glucose is still preferred because fructose has to get shuttled through the liver first. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a little bit, um, people will say it's a slower digesting carbohydrate. It just means that it's not going to the muscles first. And when you're working hard, you want things to go to the muscles first. So um, a little bit of fructose tends to be okay for those without um, those digestive difficulties, but we still don't want to have just a, a fructose only carbohydrate, all the research is on glucose, um, and getting glucose to the muscles, uh, to deliver energy, um, as you continue to push, um, to your other point, trial and error, um, as much as we can put some numbers, uh, from some research and, and quantify all this, it's going to be, you know, what brand works best for you? What time of year are things, um, you know, what worked for you one year might not work for you another year. How much time do you actually spend practicing this, um, and making it a part of your, uh, your training, um, plan really. Yeah, this, I just want to latch on to something you just said, the fact that, and this, I never believed this until it happened to me, the fact that something that worked for you for one one year is not going to work the next year. Um, I, I don't understand the mechanism for this, but it's totally happened to me where I, you know, there was one year I used a specific product, which I'm not going to name. Um, and then the next year it gave me horrible GI distress. And I have no idea why that happened. You know, maybe changes in my gut microbiome, who knows, but um, don't be, don't be surprised if it, if it happens because it, it, it's definitely a thing. 
yeah, we're constantly changing. Our bodies are restructuring all the time, right? Cellular life is, is a few days and muscular life a little bit longer, right? Our cells are regenerating. Your bodies change. Your stress level changes. Stress level is going to affect a whole host of other uh, things, and that's going to affect ultimately how you um, digest something. Cool. Um, okay, so that was that's uh, a great a high level overview of during. Um, and of course, we can get much much more granular, but we do not have the time for this. Um, I should just touch talk. upon sodium before should. we move off of during. Oh, though. sodium super important. Yes, please. Um, so as I said already that under 90 minutes, let's not even really worry about it. But when we start getting into those three hour, four hour, five hour sessions where our quantity of fluid is increasing, um, over time, uh, not to say you're drinking more, but, um, as you get longer, you're just drinking more volume throughout, uh, the workout. We need to pay attention to sodium too little sodium. You already mentioned the word hyponatremia. So that low blood sodium, uh, condition where which can be more harmful to say than dehydration we we want to prevent that obviously so maintaining a baseline of of sodium levels uh, is going to be important and this is very uh, variable between people so you can be a high uh, let's just define two things first there's a difference between um, sweat volume and sweat concentration so you can be right. a high volume salt uh, sweater meaning you produce puddles of of liquid under you if you're on the indoor trainer or you're just a sopping wet mess at the end of a run and you look like <laughs> you come out of a pool or you can be that person who's fairly dry um so that's the volume that's going to dictate more how much fluid you take in per hour now sodium concentration is the concentration of sodium that you sweat out in that volume so some people are very salty sweaters and some people are less salty sweaters. Um, it's not very scientific, but you can at least start to categorize yourself as to which camp you're in. If you look at the grit on your face after a long run, um, or if your black training gear has turned white, um, and use that as a guideline. So, or if your dog really um, likes you after your workouts. <laughs> that's another good one, yeah. <laughs> you get extra um, kisses? Extra, extra kisses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so if you're a, we want to start looking at sodium intake, not on a per hour basis, but more on a per liter of fluid basis. Um, I'll, I'll give a very general range to start and that we're either going to be in sort of a, a one to uh, like a one to two or a two to one ratio. Um, so if you're taking in, let's say, 500 mils of fluid per hour and you're a low sodium sweater, then you can probably maintain like 250 to 300 milligrams of sodium per hour and be just fine. If you're that heavy, heavy salt sweater, then you might be looking at um, 500 milligrams per 500 milliliters, so a one-to-one, or even up to a two-to-one, so 1,000 milligrams of sodium to 500 milliliters of, of water. Right. So it's a very large range, um, but we can kind of narrow that down by, uh, I hate generalizations too much, but like a safe range of about 400 milligrams of, of sodium to um, 600, 700 milligrams of sodium under normal environmental conditions um, per um, five to 600 mils of fluid per bottle of fluid. Yeah, and they're also if you're if you're really keen on getting a, a, a precise number, there are folks that'll do sweat testing. Um, 
I know Precision Hydration has a sweat test that they do. Yep. Um, they have one online that's that's pretty, you know, pretty basic and, and questionnaire based. And then they have one that actually uses a, a device to give you a, a more precise number. Yeah, the skin stimulator, um, which is kind of a neat um, concept that's based on testing from um, uh, t- genetic testing for cyst- cystic fibrosis um, children. So mm. there is a genetic variability to your your sodium uh, concentration. Right, right, yeah, and it's not, and as Tara mentioned, it it's it it can be completely decoupled from how much you actually sweat. So the volume of the the water that leaves your pores versus the sodium concentration, they don't go hand in hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for for the average person, right, like weigh yourself before and after a workout, uh, subtract the amount of. Um, water you've ingested and figure out if you're losing weight or gaining weight with that fluid consumption. If you're gaining weight, you're absolutely drinking too much volume. If you're losing weight um, and it's more than say one or 2% of your body weight, then that's a sign that you're not drinking enough. And then with the, with the, your, say your um, half iron distance, iron distance, even some of the trail running, you know, just make sure that there's a, a moderate amount of sodium in your, um, fluid intake. And that should, you know, for most people that should cover the basis. Yeah. And from personal experience, that sodium, getting the sodium right is a game changer. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a difference between feeling absolutely terrible, even though let's say the fluid intakes, right. And the carbohydrate intakes, right. And feeling pretty damn good, um, at the end of a really long workout. So it's, uh, it's something that's worth uh, paying attention to and potentially getting that test done, or at least experimenting with and seeing, seeing where you are on that spectrum. Yeah. And I'd like to add that it doesn't really, you know, cramping isn't the be all end all when it comes to sodium intake. Um, a lot of us blame, a lot of people like to blame, uh, low sodium on, on muscle cramps, but it's, it's been my experience that that has more to do with dehydration, low carbohydrate intake, um, and perhaps pushing too hard, which could also be low carbohydrate intake. Um, although many people don't like to hear that they push too hard. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, muscle cramping is weird. I, we should, yeah. we definitely need to do an episode on it because it's, it's, no, it's not very well understood. And I totally agree with you. And, and I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not very susceptible to cramps. And um, for me, the symptoms of like low sodium are just like brain fog and and loss of, uh, you know, inability to push on, kind of like well, loss of power, even if everything else is, you know, should be in place. Right, and stomach sloshing, swelling, um, yep. that kind of thing. For sure. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about what we do after workouts. Okay. So after workouts, um, for a long time now, I've said it's the three R's of recovery, uh, meaning to rehydrate, uh, replace carbohydrate or glycogen loss, and repair. So a little bit of protein. So make sure you you're finishing, you know, whatever fluids you didn't get to in your exercise, or you know, taking in another 500 mils of of fluid. Um, this can be continuing to drink your, um, electrolyte mix or, um, just having some, some water and, and some sodium likely as well. You want to replace your, um, replace some of the energy that you just burnt, right? You could be burning, um, six to 800 calories an hour for four to five hours out there. And, um, Mm -hmm. our goal during is never to replace all of that, but afterwards we need to, um, consider, you know, the caloric deficit that we just created so that we're not um, negating all that hard work and costing the body valuable tissues like muscle um, in that process. So 
making sure we're getting some carbohydrate uh, into the body immediately um, or within you know 30 to 90 minutes, although the window could be uh, negotiated a little bit, um, but replacing the food, uh, the fuel that we just lost or we just burnt, and then repairing. Um, just make sure that we're, we're getting a little bit of protein, uh, 15 to 30 grams in that post-training um, meal. Right, right. It's important to put good, uh, good nutrition in first. So it gets digested first, so it gets delivered to the muscles first, and that's going to help with a better foundation uh, so that you actually maximize the physiological benefits of that workout. So focus on on the good foods before um, before anything. Okay. So would you say that it's, uh, you know, a post, uh, post-exercise recovery is most critical for the workouts that really do drain us of those, those glycogen stores? So like the long efforts or the, you know, long-ish hard-ish efforts? Absolutely. I mean, for those long ones, the recovery even starts before the workout. So making sure you're topped up before the workout, staying on top of your nutrition during, but absolutely uh, paying attention to that, that post-workout meal um, and, the, and the couple hours following that workout. Right. So the longer the workout, uh, you're probably going to want to have something right after, recognizing that you know not a lot of people are super hungry the second they stop exercising when it's been that long. So it can be difficult to want to ingest anything. Um, we'll throw back that that liquids are, are easier on the gut than solids. So if you're doing a, a particularly long, hard workout, um, maybe try uh, a smoothie or something liquid, something simple, just to, to start that, that buildup phase again of the body and break that um, catabolic phase. And then an hour later, try to eat again. And that goes back to that balanced meal. Right. Oh, that's good advice. Um, so I have, I think we've talked about a lot of uh, really actionable information. And uh, thank you for that, Tara. I do want to talk about, as, a, as kind of a closing question for you, something that is that uh, fits nicely into the show's um, innovation ethos. And that is uh, the emerging science of genetic testing and how having your um, having that having a test like that done can inform your uh, nutrition decisions. Okay, so this is you know as you said, it's sort of an, an emerging um, science, and there's been a lot of work done um, in some key areas to identify genes that have a impact on uh, a person's nutrition. So this is one way that athletes can, who are looking for a bit more of an edge or just looking to solve some problems, uh, can sort of use to personalize their nutrition. Um, because while we all know like vegetables are good for us, this can, that's a pretty general, uh, statement. So having a, um, genetic, um, test done, um, will help identify, um, the veneer, the variability, um, when it comes to certain dietary interventions, like a high protein diet, or um, you know how somebody metabolizes starch, right? So in the in that uh, in light of that, given that it's you know an emerging science and that uh, there's still a lot of work being done, what do you feel like if you want to pick out one, two, or three examples of um, where genetic testing could make? Uh, a real actionable difference to to an athlete where the science is you know in your opinion reasonably robust yeah um so th- a couple of those one one is definitely caffeine 
Okay. Um, so, and let me just backtrack too. We're, we're looking at um, sort of the, the epigenetics of it and the gene um, expression, if you will. So everybody's got the genes, but they're all slightly um, different. <laughs> um, and that'll dictate how they respond to uh, the environment or increase um, somebody's risk factor when it comes to ability to, say, uh, break down caffeine or tolerate uh, glucose or even um, absorb um, vitamin D or iron, for example. Okay. So uh, caffeine is one that a lot of research has been uh, done on. And specifically, this is uh, somebody's um, CYP1A2 gene. And um, there's a certain percentage of the population that um, can metabolize caffeine well uh, or quickly and those that can't metabolize caffeine well. Okay. And so how does that manifest itself? Um, so caffeine is one of those legal, um, most widely consumed legal drugs in the world. Uh, yeah. It's been you know, shown, it's been um, used in sport for a very long time. And there's been a lot of research lately that you know, has shown some, um, I'll say variability in results, right? We see this, I'll, I won't say day in and day out, but maybe like one month caffeine's good for you. Another month caffeine's bad for you. <laughs> um, and what athletes really want to know is how is it going to affect performance? <laughs> so if we look at um, one of these genes um, and the expression of it, a certain population will either um, break it down quickly and have a decreased risk of cardiovascular disease um, as well as a slight performance boost, um, okay. whereas those that are slow metabolizers um, should probably consume less caffeine because they're going to have a higher risk of um, cardiovascular disease with that, and it will could possibly also be a performance detriment. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's, it's a little bit more complicated than how an athlete feels on caffeine. So we all know some people who get really jittery um, and don't typically consume caffeine. So maybe they're questioning, should I have that energy gel that has caffeine in it? Um, because will it actually help me in my, my workout? Unfortunately, like genes don't work that way. We can't tell how we feel on them. Uh, so having the, the saliva based test done would be the only real way to check that. Um, but there is that certain population, uh, or percentage of the population that will see a, you know, fairly substantial, uh, performance boost by having um, a caffeinated gel or uh, a shot of espresso um, in the morning before the race. Sure. And so just to make sure I understand you correctly, having a test uh, or having one of these um, genetic panels done um, and then that panel showing you whether or not you're a fast or a slow metabolizer, then you can then you can make that decision whether or not you want to make caffeine part of your kind of daily life and training. Is that is that right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, anything else on that uh, along those lines? Um, I think that's you know one of the it's it's a good example there um, of how performance can be or diet can be tailored to the the individual. Um, but there, you know, in in some of the tests, there's about twenty five or, or thirty five known um, risk variants that um, have been shown to have effect when it comes to uh, nutrition. Cool. 
Okay. Well, um, you know, as that uh, as that science as that science evolves, uh, we'll we'll keep bugging you for information on it, and uh, absolutely maybe bring you back for a, a genetic specific show once. Uh, yeah, or I'll put you in touch with the people that um, are a little bit more up in that uh, in that realm and uh, can talk to a few of the other uh, uh, genetic variants. Awesome. Well, Tara, listen, thank you so much for coming on. I think this was uh, this, uh, I feel like this was the podcast that a lot of the people that were talking to me about a nutrition podcast were, uh, were looking for. So I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. I feel like we've, we've only, you know, touched the surface. And as I'm looking at everything, I can't believe that, you know, 75 minutes have passed so quickly and that there's so much more of your diet to consider. Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, look, that means that there's uh, there's an opportunity to have uh, have follow up discussions. Absolutely. So, Tara, when can where can people find you if they want to uh, learn more about what you do and uh, reach out for a little bit of help? Uh, people can find me at my uh, website, which is heal-nutrition.com um, or social handles uh, Healthy Eating Active Living on Facebook or Heal Toronto on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Cool. And of course, as always, we will post those links in our show notes. Uh, Tara, anything you want to uh, plug or talk about? Anything that uh, any events that you want uh, our listeners in Toronto or elsewhere maybe to know about? Um, I do have a uh, triathlon training camp coming up in Palm Springs in uh, January. If anybody wants to get out of the snow and and do some good hill training uh, in Palm Springs, Palm Desert area. Um Otherwise, just continue to eat uh, a good, balanced, healthy diet. And um, remember that it's it's the food that um, real food is important. <laughs> I like it. That's great advice. And uh, uh, Tara, I'll ask you to send me the link to your to your camp and I will I'll put that in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, uh, everyone, thanks again for listening. And uh, if you enjoyed the show, do uh, send us a, a question if you have any follow up uh, things that you want us to talk about. And uh, tell your friends and rate us and review us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>